Welcome back, everyone, to the Sheep Among Wolves podcast. I am your host. Um, I know it's been maybe a week or two since the last recording. Sometimes it's hard to count the days. Um, but I wanted to make it a point to uh, to get another episode um, on the books and continue this series without too much time la- lapsing. Um, if you follow our reading program, um, I, I put that to the side for a couple of days so I could focus a little bit on more uh, studying the Bible for the purpose of, of this program, but we will pick up um, on that one shortly as well. So last week, um, we started the series called What is a Christian? With part one, um, I'd say the topics discussed could best be summed up as saved by faith. We talked about how there's nothing man can do to be righteous before God. No matter how nice you are, how many good deeds you do, or how much you donate, or how many jobs you provide, you are a sinner. Big or small, sin is sin in God's court, and we are all guilty. To the unbeliever, we can point to our own court system as an example. If you helped an old lady with her groceries before getting in your own car and heading home, then you get issued a speeding ticket on the way home, you would still be guilty of speeding. The officer isn't going to withhold the ticket on account of your other good deeds, and the judge is definitely not going to even hear that in court. How then can the unbeliever contend that they can get to heaven on their own, knowing full and well that they have broken God's laws and rejected his one and only plan for salvation? That only plan for salvation was one perfect, blameless, sinless person would need to die in our place and take the punishment and burden for all our sins or at least the sins of those who accept him as their Lord and Savior. Now, obviously, we know that person was Jesus Christ, uh, God's one and only Son. And because of Abraham's faith in God when he obeyed his command in sacrificing his one and only Son, God was willing to sacrifice his own Son. God, of course, stopped Abraham from sacrificing his son and sent a ram in his place. This is one of the first examples of the gospel that we see in scripture, as that ram, of course, represents the sacrifice to come of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When I first came to understand the significance of that story, I was blown away, as I had never really heard it explained in this way. If this is the first time that you've heard it um, explained in this way, I encourage you to listen to a little song called The Gospel by a Christian rapper named Bizzle. When I was uh, fresh in the faith and I was, uh, you know, looking for different artists, uh, Christian artists, obviously, to listen to, I I happened upon this song. And... um, After 
having listened to it, it really helped me start reading the the Old Testament in a in a whole new light. I know some Christians I've heard, you know, say, oh, the Old Testament, uh, maybe we don't need to read that because, you know, Jesus came and that's what the New Testament's about. Or sometimes it's just boring to them, it's repetitive, it's this, it's that, but, you know, God doesn't make any mistakes. And every word that he put in that Bible uh, is there for a reason. So, um, any way that you can shed new light to help you better understand or, or better see what God is trying to say in his word um, is always a great opportunity to take. So I would encourage you, um, if you do find yourself maybe having a hard time reading the Old Testament or really just like understanding what the point of reading it is, uh, I would encourage you to, to listen to that song. So here we see God sent a sacrifice in the place of Isaac because Abraham demonstrated his faith through unwavering obedience to God's command. However, Abraham had faith in God long before that moment. So what's the difference after this moment versus his faith before this moment? Abraham not only demonstrated that he believed in God, Abraham demonstrated a faith strong enough to obey God's command, even when it could mean great harm to himself or his family. Only after he demonstrated this great faith did God send a ram in Isaac's place and make a covenant with Abraham. Now, let's drop down into scripture and see exactly what happened following Abraham's act of obedience. <clears throat> this is uh, Genesis 22, 16 through 18 for anyone who wants to get out their Bible, look it up and uh, follow along, or perhaps read the chapter for context. Um, I'll give a small pause here. All right, so by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Again, that's Genesis 22, 16 through 18. This covenant includes our salvation. As it says, in your offspring all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. It doesn't say that only your offspring will be blessed, but it says all the nations of the earth. And that only came through Jesus Christ. So we can see very clearly that this is a, I guess you could say a foreshadow or just a little bit of um, a, a reference, I guess you can say, to, to our own salvation that's, uh, that's to come.
And so we can see that God has always saved man by faith through grace. In this moment, Abraham perfectly demonstrates what it means to have saving faith. Now, because of this, I have a question for you. If Abraham demonstrated a saving faith through an unflinching obedience to God's command, then what would a saving faith look like to us? Well, the answer is a saving faith for us would call us to obedience as well. And this brings us to the topic of tonight's episode, part two of what it means to be a Christian, or what is a Christian, um, called to obey. So, yes, we are indeed saved by faith through grace, but a saving faith requires obedience to God's command. Abraham knew of and had faith in God long before this moment in his life. However, God did not make a covenant with him until he demonstrated his faith through obedience. And we are called to do the same. Now, in my time before being a Christian and in my time being a Christian, I have seen and heard many Christians dismiss sin as something innocent. Many Christians believe that Jesus loves them and God created this world for them to just live it up and have as much fun in the playground as they can, and that Jesus was sent to allow them to have fun however they want, and not worry about the afterlife, because he died for their sins. Let me be very clear. Jesus did not die for any of the sins of the person who believes in this false doctrine. If you are listening to this, and you think you might have fallen victim to this false teaching, I beg you to repent. Pray to God and ask him for his forgiveness without hesitation, because you are not saved and life is frail. Now, other Christians do believe that we are to resist and fight against sin. However, if you ask them what sin is, their answer might not quite match God's answer. You might find this false doctrine in people or churches who like to think of themselves as being modern, open-minded, intellectual, or progressive. Now, there's nothing wrong with having any of those qualities, and actually, I would think many of those qualities, I'm sure, could help the church. However, God's word cannot take a back seat to any of them. There are some things in God's word that are not going to agree with your intellect. They aren't going to agree with our modern culture. There are some topics where God's word is very clear, and we are called to be closed-minded on it if we are to obey his command. Lastly, there are other Christians who call sin, sin. There is no gray area when it comes to that which God strictly condemns. However, this set of Christians, which I am describing, don't stop there. They like the laws that God set up 
but they don't think he did quite a good enough job. So they've taken the liberty to help God out and finish the work that he started. They may have a laundry list of things that a Christian ought to do and a laundry list of things a Christian ought not to do. Now, there's nothing wrong with creating rules for yourself in addition to God's law. As a matter of fact, I personally think we could all use a few more rules to govern ourselves in our own personal weaknesses. However, God will take issue with anyone who adds to his command and preaches it as truth to his children. Now, for the sake of this episode, we are only going to be focusing on the first two types which I described, but the third is sure to come up in another episode. While I've used the term Christians for simplicity's sake, I would say anyone who has fallen prey to these first two false doctrines is far from being truly a Christian. In relation to the first type of Christian that I've described, I've heard many Christians express that they are not even sure if the Ten Commandments apply to us. I've heard people get as specific to say, Didn't Jesus come to get rid of the Ten Commandments? However, the Bible is very clear on this. And actually, Jesus himself says in Matthew 15, 17 through 18, pause so you can get your Bibles and look up the the verse. Do not presume that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of a letter shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Again, that's Matthew fifteen seventeen through 18 So the short answer is no. Jesus did not come and wipe out the Old Testament. He certainly did not replace the Ten Commandments with pure, unconditional grace. Yes, salvation is free, but it does have requirements at the same time. I said it once already today, but I will say it again. We are saved by faith through grace. This is another one of those common Christian sayings that we can get so comfortable hearing that we don't ever stop to think about what it means. It just sounds very precious and pious when it comes out of our mouths. So let's break it down to better understand it. How does God save? Through grace. How do we attain this salvation? Through faith. But, how can we demonstrate a saving faith to God through our obedience? But don't just take my word for it. Here is a passage from the word of God through our fellow brother in the faith, James. This is James 2, 18 through 21. But someone may well say, You have faith, and I have works. 
Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to acknowledge, you foolish person, that faith without works is useless? Was our father Abraham not justified by his works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Again, that's James 2, 18-21. Now, you can tell that James cared for the lost Christian or for the lost sheep because he wastes no time and he cuts right down to the bone to help us to understand what it truly means to be a Christian, what a saving faith looks like. And he does this by sort of comparing a person who just believes in God to demons, because the demons also believe in God, and they fear him. So if all you do is believe in God, but you live your life just like the atheist does, just like the rest of the world, and there's no fruit in your life that shows that your root is Jesus and scripture then there is no saving faith. And that's what I intend to do um, when I'm sharing the gospel, when I'm sharing God's word. I, I don't want to waste any time um, beating around the bush because life is short, time is precious, and there are people, there are sheep who are lost out there, and they need to hear it. It may offend some people, and it might not be well received, but I hope that it hits deep the people who need to hear it and that it strengthens those who have heard it and have come to understand it. But we all need a refresher every now and then to remember who we are and who we're living for and how we are supposed to do that. All right, so now that we've broken down uh, what a saving faith uh, looks like, let's talk about uh, what this obedience means or what this obedience looks like. Now, I said this earlier, the, word, the phrase, obey God's command. But this is, again, one of those phrases that just sounds very great and very pious when you say it. Um, but it's also very vague. It doesn't have a lot of, if you ever heard of SMART goals, um, you wouldn't get an A-plus for, for making this as your uh, New Year's resolution for a SMART goal, um, uh, because there's, there's nothing really to it. I'm gonna obey, I'm gonna obey God's command this year. Um, it's a, it's great, and you should. But uh, we need to fully understand what that means if we're actually going to act on that uh, desire or that promise that we're, we're making to ourselves. So if you're new in the faith or you haven't read your Bible that much, um, perhaps you're, you're new to the church or perhaps you've spent years in the church but only minutes in your Bible, um, this, is, this is what we're going to break down here is what it really means to obey God's command. 
Now, to fully understand it, um, obviously we need to read our Bibles. This is one of the reasons why it is so important for us as Christians to read our Bibles. I'm, I'm sure you you hear your own pastor saying it. I'm sure you hear people, maybe even people on social media who you follow if they're Christian, uh, say it too. And uh, maybe that's another one that <laughs> that we say all the time and we don't take it to heart or we don't put it into practice. But I can't say it enough. If you're not reading your Bible, then you're not really having a relationship with God because you're not listening to him. You're you might pray and you're just talking to him, but any good relationship, there's talking and there's listening and there's action. So the Bible, for instance, uh, the Bible isn't something that we read once and, all right, we read it. That's it. I can put it down, check that off my list. I, I don't have to do that ever again for the rest of my life. The, the Bible is not a book like that. The Bible is something that we should strive to have written on our hearts. We should, we should strive to have it, have it memorized. Now, that would be pretty difficult to have the whole Bible memorized, but uh, we should at the very least um, be reading it daily and be reading it at least once every year. I mean read it time and time and time again. Um, and and every time, it's going to be different. Every time there's going to be something different that sticks out to you. So it, it might be the same book that you're reading, but depending on the season that you're going through, it's going to provide a new value to you every time you read it. So read your Bible. After all, God's command is found in his word. How are we going to obey it if we don't even know what it is? Now there are many teachings and stories and principles developed throughout the Bible where God not only reveals his character to us, but he reveals to us what he expects from us and how we are to live our lives. To cover the whole topic of what is God's command, one would need to cover the whole Bible, and that's too extensive for this episode, or really for any sermon for that matter, uh, you'll just have to go and, and read it yourself and do it many, many times. God's word is vast and his wisdom is never ending. No matter how many times you read the Bible, you are not going to fully comprehend every single part of it. That's just how it works. I don't make the rules. <laughs> Uh, so for the sake of this episode, let's just talk about the foundation of morality, which God set forth for his people in the Old Testament, which, by the way, Jesus did not abolish. Let's start with a verse from the New Testament, uh, Galatians 3.24, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Perhaps one of the greatest purpose the laws God gave Moses was to prove to us that we are sinners, to act as a mirror in front of us, to show us how unrighteous we are, and that we cannot live a life that makes us righteous before God and worthy of entering his kingdom. 
The law is what brings us to recognizing that we need a savior, that we can't do it on our own. However, when I say the word the law, or the phrase, I guess, that's two words, uh, I understand it can spur some confusion among Christians. And to be honest, this confusion is actually understandable to me, because it took a while for me to understand it. What I don't understand is why it took a while for me to understand it. I I feel like not enough people really talk about this or clarify it for us Christians, the what the law means, because if you look in the Old Testament, you know, there's there's a lot of laws, and if you grouped them all together, you would be misinterpreting scripture. After all, a sound Christian foundation begins with sound doctrine, and without a strong foundation, you can't really build much. So this, I thought, is crucial. Personally, I believe that the law and the sin are the first two topics any Christian new to the faith should be taught about. As a matter of fact, they're also the two primary tools we should be using when attempting to evangelize to unbelievers. However, getting back to the point, the term the law can refer to the Ten Commandments as well as the Mosaic Law. However, in the context of the New Covenant, and as Christians, the law refers to the Ten Commandments. Now, you might be asking yourself, why do we keep one set of laws and not the other? Or you may be asking in the reverse order, if we're getting rid of one set of laws, why don't we just get rid of the other? The Ten Commandments can also be described as moral law. The purpose of the Ten Commandments was to define sin so God's people can know what he expects from them in terms of right versus wrong. However, Mosaic law can be described as ceremonial law, ordinances, or sacrificial law. The moral law deals with defining sin, whereas the sacrificial law deals with what the sinner must do in order to receive forgiveness when the moral law is broken. For instance, when an Israelite sinned, they would then bring an offering to atone for their sins and receive forgiveness. Of course, the offerings and sacrifices provided by the Israelites isn't what actually cleared the debt of their sins. Their offerings and sacrifices to God pointed backward to Abraham's offering of his only son Isaac, as well as forward to the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that he made on the cross. Obviously, we know when he did this, that is what paid the debt for the sins of all who accept him as their Lord and Savior, which, again, is exemplified in Genesis 22:18, And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. That very first offering Abraham made points to the Lamb of God being offered up as a sacrifice for our sins. And so, by obeying God's command... 
Although Jesus had not yet come and died for anyone's sins, Abraham and his descendants could attain salvation by obeying the ceremonial law and offering sacrifices in faith of what their sacrifices were pointing to, Jesus Christ. Therefore, when Jesus came and died for our sins, there is no longer a need for ceremonial law. Now, we attain our salvation not by pointing to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We attain our salvation directly through him. And so, the ceremonial law is no longer relevant, but the moral law of the Ten Commandments, which defines sin, is an eternal law which can never pass away. If you are confused or unclear on this topic before, I truly hope this helped clear it up. It is a topic that I wish I fully understood much earlier in my walk. And so, the Ten Commandments established a moral law not only for the Israelites, but for the Gentiles as well, you and I. Whether you believe in them or not, they are there, and all mankind will be held to that standard on Judgment Day. If you don't have a Savior who interceded on your behalf when that day comes, you will be found guilty, denied entrance to heaven, and spend eternity in a fiery, painful, godless turmoil. So, while it takes a true relationship with God through prayer, talking, and reading his word, listening, to fully grasp his character, the moral law, also known as the Ten Commandments, is the best place to start. And if we are striving to obey God's command, we can begin by obeying the Ten Commandments. Or, if you find that you identify with one of the first two groups of Christians I described earlier, we can begin by reading the Ten Commandments and searching our hearts for ways that we have disobeyed or are disobeying them in our lives. Then we can repent and ask God to forgive ourselves for disregarding his moral law as just some old guidelines for the Israelites. Lastly, we should memorize these commandments and have them written on our heart to keep us from transgressing them and for bringing us to rapid repentance if we do transgress one or more of them. In case you haven't heard them in a while, let's go over them briefly here. Number one. You shall have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven or on earth, beneath or in the water under earth. You shall not worship them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, inflicting punishment of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing favor to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not, number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. 
For six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your cattle or your resident who stays with you. For in the six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. For that reason, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Number five, honor your father and your mother, so that your days may be prolonged on the land which the Lord your God gives you. Number six, you shall not murder. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Number eight, you shall not steal. Number nine, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And number 10, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male slave, or his female slave, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, some of these might sound simple to keep, and others may be more difficult. Others might seem so innocent to humanize that you don't recognize that you're actually sinning. However, Jesus points out to us that they can be more difficult to keep than we thought. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Matthew 5:27 through 28 Not only is Jesus reaffirming that God's moral law is holy and eternal, he further increases the command of obedience to not only being obedient in controlling one's outward actions, but addressing the source that is the sinful thoughts and desires which reside in the hearts of all mankind. Are you resisting the temptation to act on your sinful thoughts and desires, friends? If so, what is your thought life like? I know the answer. It's not perfect. Thoughts can be a difficult thing to control, and wicked thoughts come from the sin that resides in our hearts just waiting for a moment of weakness to exploit. If you remember the old nature uh, example that we gave in the last podcast. However, while it can be difficult to control your thoughts, are you fighting your wicked thoughts? Maybe some of you are, and good. I, I encourage you to continue uh, to fight that good fight. And maybe some of you aren't. Maybe some of you find yourselves delighting in your wicked thoughts while being in complete control of your actions. Maybe you think, well, they aren't hurting anyone, and I'm not acting on them, so I can have my fun in my own personal thought theater. No harm, no foul. Let me tell you, if you are permitting sinful thoughts to swim in your being, the day of weakness will come when you act on them and they won't seem so innocent and harmless anymore. And even if your wicked thoughts never lead to a wicked action, 
they will be put on display in the day of judgment. For God knows you and your life inside and out. God sees your actions and your heart. When Jesus Christ was describing the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, he said, But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed, and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you had said in the dark will be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. That's Luke 12, 2 through 3. And so, God calls his children to unwavering obedience to his command, inside and out. His moral law is a good beginning to know and understand the will and character of God to better understand his command. Jesus did not come to this earth to do away with the Ten Commandments so we can live our lives however we want, carefree. Rather, he reiterated them and even increased their weight. We are called to work on the outward sin in our lives and root out the sin that is festering in our hearts. We can only achieve this with an unflinching, Abraham-esque obedience to God's command, with a faith just as strong. My question for you is, have you answered this call to obedience? Was it a yes or was it a no? If it was a yes, was it with enthusiasm or was it muttered begrudgingly? Oh, Christian friend, to love the Lord in all his ways, commands, and statutes should bring us to not only obey them, we should want to obey his command with a joyful, exuberant, zeal. If you've searched your heart and you've found you've come short of this, if you are struggling to fight the sin in your life, if you've identified with Christian 1 or Christian 2 in this episode and you want to make a change, Christian friends, I want to leave you with this verse to help you in your walk with God through a broken, deceitful world. And if you want to turn to your Bibles, the verse I will be reading is Psalms 119, 9 through 16. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Thank you for tuning in for some virtual community. That is it for this episode of Sheep Among Wolves. Until next time, may God richly bless you, my dearly beloved.